As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who has descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. What do you think of your body? Most of us probably wish our bodies could have a few adjustments. Some improvements, maybe. But I want to just share a few facts about our bodies. Your heart beats about 35 million times a year. During an average lifetime, your heart will beat over 2.5 billion times. It just keeps going. If all the blood vessels in your body were laid end-to-end, -end, they would reach over 60,000 miles. They would go around the world twice. You blink your eyes over 10 million times a year. Some people do even more than that. Your tongue has 3,000 taste buds. Your mouth produces enough saliva every day to fill a 12-ounce bottle. It's enough to make you spit. An adult's digestive tract is six to nine meters long. In other words, if we got your guts and laid them out in a row, they would go from end to end in this room. What a charming thought. There were about 300 bones in your body when you were born. By the time you reach adulthood, you only have 206. I don't know what happened to those other 94 bones, but I'm going to ask someone later. Your mouth uses 75 muscles when you speak. Your brain is more active and thinks more at night than during the, de the day. And did you know your brain is 80% water? The body really is amazing. Really is amazing. No wonder that the psalm writer says to God, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderfully. Now, why are we talking about bodies? We're doing a six-week series, you can see the slide there, on the church. 
uh, Bible's teaching about the church. What is the church? What is it? What's it for? What are its purposes? And how do we deal with problems and conflict within church? Now, why are we doing this? The short answer is that the church matters to God. It is incredibly important to him. And yet, there's a lot of confusion about the church, even among Christian believers. The church matters to God. He loves it. The Bible says that Jesus bought the church with his own blood. Therefore, it should be important to us. We need to understand it rightly and relate to it accordingly. And last week, I read a quotation from the great John Tyndall, my dad. And that quotation was so good, I'm going to read it again. I want to suggest to you that the church is the best place to belong. By that, I mean that such is the importance and value which the great God places upon the church, that to belong to the church is the most important thing you could belong to. And to have no place in the Christian church is to be missing something that you will regret for eternity. Now, last week we thought about one of the foundational descriptions of the church, which is the people of God. And I finished that, that message with this illustration of some guys, who, Kurdish men, who run a family mini-market in West Didsbury, but they were up having lunch at Jaffa in Rushome on the Curry Mile near our office. And I saw them in there. I said, hey, what are you guys doing up here having lunch at Jaffa? Because they work really long hours down in West Didsbury. And they said, these are our people. The guys that run this restaurant are our people. We love coming here. And of course, they love the food. Our people. And so the encouragement from last week was to see the church as my people. This is where I belong. These are my people. The church is the people of God, declaring his praises and living conspicuously good lives. And today we're going to come to the second big description of the church in the New Testament. It is the body of Christ. The body of Christ. This is the major image for the church in the Apostle Paul's writings. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 10 through 12, uh, mentions of it in Colossians and especially in Ephesians. Ephesians is the great letter about the church and here Paul describes the church as Christ's body ten times. One scholar, Andrew Lincoln, writes, throughout the letter, the body image is used to help believers see themselves as a compact whole, unified, in relation to the exalted Jesus Christ as their head. The church, which is his body, is the special sphere of his presence. Now, I tell you what, I've got to share something I've been, I'm getting quite embarrassed about, and I think I'm just going to say it. I have to confess a bit of embarrassment. It's that here at Grace Church, we almost always talk about the church as a family. Don't we? We almost always say things like the church family. Or we even have the family meeting, which we can't remember the date for. But I've been studying for this series. I've been really convicted to reconsider what is the primary image that we're given in the Bible. And, the, and actually to reconsider this family language that we use all the time. Now, the New Testament does use familial language. We call each other brothers and sisters, you know. But Chris Green, in his excellent book on the church, points out that Paul only uses the concept of the family one time, and he's not talking about the church. Green concludes, we cannot take family as a particular synonym for the church, and the phrase, the church family, probably ought to be played down. Interesting. So from now on, we're going to be talking about the body meeting. Okay? 
Time for the body meeting, the church body. Okay, now the key passage in all this is going to be Ephesians 4, and it's so important we're going to look at it over two weeks. There are three points here which emerge for us about how to be the body of Christ here in urban South Manchester. Three points to think about the, the body's unity, its diversity, and its maturity. Its unity, diversity, and maturity. Today we're only going to think about the first two, unity and diversity. Look at verse 1, please, if you would, chapter 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, Paul says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul has just spent three chapters writing the most glorious theology of God's eternal purposes being worked out in history. Through Jesus, who died for sinners and was raised from death, God is now creating something entirely new in the world. God is not just creating a new life for individuals, but a whole new society. Paul sees an alienated people, alienated humans being reconciled, fractured and broken humans being healed and united, and a whole new humankind being created. It is a magnificent vision for those three chapters. And now, chapter 4, it's going to get practical. And he turns to the readers, and as it were, he looks us in the eye. And he's a bit of a dramatic pause, and he, he says... As a prisoner, so he's in prison. As a prisoner, this is a prison letter, I, Paul, the apostle, the authoritative messenger from God, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Wow, that's big. To live a life worthy of the calling, that means live up to what God has done for you. And God has done quite a lot for us, don't you agree? Paul is in prison. He looks at us and he says with passion, I'm urging you to live a life worthy of that calling that God has set upon you. And so we're, we're, we're pausing and we're thinking, okay, Paul, what does that look like? And here it is in verse 2 and 3. This is what we need to do. We need to be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, I... <laughs> In some ways, it seems a bit of an anticlimax. Doesn't that seem a little bit passive? As an inspirational speech, you know, this has kind of gone a bit feeble, isn't it? You know, be completely humble and gentle. Why is this plea of Paul so important? Because if Christians live like this, the world will see and God will get great glory and the church will be strong. But if Christians fail to live like this, then the church will be weak and it will fail to give glory to God. So the stakes are very high. Here's how it works. Verse 2, bear with one another in love. This means put up with each other. Endure each other. Jesus used this word when he spoke about his generation. He said, faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you? Paul writes in another place, we boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and your faith in all your persecutions and in all the afflictions you are enduring. Talking about being persecuted. And here we have the same word being used of our relationships within the church. You have to put up with other Christians. 
It's like being putting up with persecution. <laughs> and he adds these other phrases. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bear with each other in love. You know, we're going to need all of these qualities if we're going to bear with each other, aren't we? Humble. This is a lowly mindset that sees the worth and value of every other person and has a low view of one's own importance. Gentle. Not, as, not a weak person, but strength under control. Someone who doesn't assert their personal rights, but lets the others speak. Patience. Long-suffering towards aggravating people. Love. Love embraces all the rest and binds them together. Love is to seek the welfare of other people and to seek the good of our community. Now, we need these qualities, friends, because community life is exceptionally difficult. One of the things we've pursued at Grace Church is not just to be a church on Sunday, but to share our lives through the week. You heard mention earlier on about life groups. That means people actually see you in your home. A little bit more like you really are. And when we're rubbing up against each other, community life, we find, is actually quite hard work. Some of us would rather pull out our own teeth than bear with other people. In some ways, it's easier to make a great sacrificial gesture than to bear with the everyday irritations and ambiguity of human relationships. Just think about it. Personality clashes. Do you ever have a personality clash with somebody else? sure you do. Different ideas about what politeness and courtesy look like. Criticism, especially when you feel it's unjust. Rudeness. People who are bossy. People who don't listen. Disagreement over the way things should be done. Cultural differences. It's so amazing to be in an international church, but our cultures are so different, aren't they? We need to give each other a lot of grace. Tension over who's in charge, control, and even just irritation over other people's annoying habits and foibles. I'm perfect, but the rest of you can be a bit irksome. <laughs> now, some time ago, I was talking to a friend who was leading a new church plant. By the way, it wasn't Ralph. He doesn't speak like this. And now he said, I'm going to use a word that he said that is a little bit salty. I'm going to say it anyway. He said, what I've realized is the main thing I've learned is that it's my job to absorb other people's crap for the glory of God. What a privilege. <laughs> That's church leadership. Now, it's, it's not easy to bear with one another, if we're honest. It's not easy, but that is what we are called to do here if we're going to live a life worthy of, of what Jesus has called us to. And positively, verse 3, we've got to make every effort to maintain unity. Verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now, this, what this means is it's bearing with each other isn't just about gritting our teeth and sort of knuckling under. It's about keeping something together in the church that God the Holy Spirit has created that is very beautiful, that is actually a unique society on earth, the church of Jesus Christ. We don't need to create this unity. He says maintain it. It's already been achieved. The moment that you became a follower of Jesus Christ, you were at that moment, in terms of your position, 
united with Jesus' body. That means you were united with other Christians. And maybe you remember those early days when you first started following Jesus and you felt part of something really warm, really strong, something so diverse and different, but it was, it was unique in culture. It enjoyed a unity that came from the Holy Spirit. We don't have to create that, it's given. But we do have to maintain it, he says, because we can tear it down so easily if we're not careful. In fact, the unity of a church, the unity of a small group, the unity of a, of a ministry or a team, is under constant threat because of these forces that move around that will threaten to pull it apart. So we have to bear with each other and maintain the unity of the Spirit. And if we live like this, then the church will be strong and God will get great glory because no one else in the world lives like that. Most people in the world choose to hang out with people like them and do stuff that they enjoy and walk away from relationships when they get too difficult. None of that is true of the church of Jesus Christ. We get to hang out with people who are completely unlike us and do things that none of us would have chosen to do for the sake of pleasure. And we don't walk away when the relationships get hard. Because we're united. One body. See, this Christian community has got to be radically different to live up to this vision. It is a body. It's unified. We have to bear with each other. We have to strive, make effort to maintain unity. And Paul says, you know, the way you're going to do this is by remembering what you've got in common. Look at verses 4 to 6. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in you all. This is the calling we were called to when Jesus spoke to our lives and brought us to himself. Every Christian has a calling. You know, we tend to think of calling as certain kinds of vocation, a nurse, a mother, teacher, vicar. But here it says every Christian has a calling. We're called to belong to Jesus, and that outstrips and trumps every other calling in your life. What is the word that Paul uses again and again in those verses? Did you spot it? Anyone? One, thank you. One, one body. The church is called a body to show that it's a unity. Even though it has many varied parts, it is unified. If we were to get a, a machete and chop off one part of your body at this moment and take it to the other side of the room, I guess we would all know about it. Because you quite enjoy your body's unity. You don't want parts to be separated. One spirit. There's one Holy Spirit who creates the church. He brings people to hear the gospel. He convicts them of their sin. He gives them new birth. He brings them to know Jesus. He changes their hearts so they obey God. There's one spirit. One hope. We all share the same hope of heaven. The hope that we will live in a new world, free from sin, in new bodies, united with God and each other. That's not a privatized paradise just for you. It's a corporate hope of life together. One Lord. Lord usually refers to Jesus in the New Testament. There is one Jesus who died on the cross one time and rose from the dead once for our justification. We belong to him. We have the same Lord. Every Christian has the same Lord. One faith. We, we share the same deposit and body of truth that explains God to us 
and explains who we are. One, baptism. Baptism marks the entry into the Christian church. If you have been baptized, you have said you belong to Jesus and you share in the new life of his body. One God and Father who is above all. Do you see how much we have in common? Christian friends, do you see all the really big stuff is in place? All the really important things have been given to us. We have far, far more in common than we have apart. We have far more in common than we realise. We have every reason to work hard at bearing with each other and striving to maintain unity. So let's do that. The unity of the body. But then there's an interesting twist here in the text. Because so far, Paul has been emphasising how much we have in common. But then in verse 7, he says, but, and notice, notice how it changes here, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Grace was given to each one of us, different grace. Jesus apportioned out his grace, his gift, to every single one of us. What is Paul getting at here? He's talking about diversity. He's talking about diversity. So far, everyone in the room, I think, has probably been nodding and saying, yes, it's wonderful what God has done in Jesus. And isn't the gospel great news? And yes, we're probably all thinking, we really should be unified. Well, what a lovely picture. What a wonderful thought to have a, a united people. So at this point, I want to ask you an, a, an awkward question. You ready? Who's responsible for the life and the unity and the growth of the church? Who is responsible for that? Whose job is it to ensure that we all work together? Who needs to own the church and its life? Who's responsible for our unity? Who are the ministers? And the answer, according to the Bible, is you all. You're all ministers. The minister is a servant, someone who does works of service. We are all responsible. Verse 13 to 14. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Okay, all that unity, wonderful. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. We're responsible for this. Church, Melissa and I and our family attended in America, had a, an old-fashioned service sheet with the hymns in it, and uh, every Sunday they produced the same thing, but it had notices were changed and things like that. And on the top of this service sheet, it, it had a senior pastor and his name, he was called Dorrington Little III. And then there was associate pastor, Robert Tanzel. And then there was youth pastor, uh, Kevin Baird, or whatever. And then underneath that, it said this every week, ministers, the entire congregation. The entire congregation. We're all ministers. And you're probably thinking, me? I don't have much to offer. I'm just an ordinary person. Maybe you're a teenager. Maybe you, you think, I'm just this, I, don't have, I don't have many gifts. Well, do you have anything to offer? Turns out the answer is yes. Look back at verse uh, 8. Jesus, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. 
Now, this is a quote from a psalm, Psalm 68 in the Old Testament. And Paul takes this to show that Jesus gives gifts to his church, to everyone. In the ancient world, a conquering king would defeat the enemy and then would pinch all their stuff, would take all the treasure and the spoils of battle, and then would distribute this wealth, gold, clothing and whatever to his allies and his subjects. And Paul uses that quote, that image, to talk about the work of Jesus. Although Jesus was God, he came all the way down and he became one of us through his incarnation and he humbled himself to be a servant and he even humbled himself to death on a cross. And when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, to the right hand of God the Father, it says he gave gifts to people. He gave gifts to his people. And some of those gifts are mentioned here, but they're not the only ones. Some of those gifts are mentioned in verse 11. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. Now here he mentions four or five gifts. It's a bit of a debate about whether the last one is, is pastors and teachers, and that's two or just one. It doesn't really matter. The point is these are foundational gifts for establishing a church. The apostles were the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. They were the ones who were given the authority to teach and to write the scriptures and give us the, the New Testament. They were the foundational preachers. Then there were the prophets. This talks about the, here is the New Testament prophets, those that took God's word and preached it powerfully and, and helped to build congregations. Evangelists are those that are particularly gifted at sharing the good news and can do that in creative ways, personally and in public ways. Uh, pastors and teachers. Now this could either be pastors whose role is particularly for caring for the flock and teachers who teach, or they could be one person, pastor-teacher. But these gifts are all speaking and teaching gifts, and they all relate to establishing a church. But look at what the point of them is, verse 12, to equip the people for works of service so that the body may be built up. So the, the, the work of a, of a pastor is to help you serve the church. It's kind of different to how we sometimes think of pastors as the ones who do all the work, right? They're the professionals. Actually, the job of a pastor is equipping the church to do works of service. Jesus gave us these gifts for his body. So you are the ministers. It turns out that we all need you, and you need all of us. Your individual equipping, whatever gifts you have, were actually given to you by no less than the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So, I want to ask you a question. What are your gifts? Have you ever stopped and thought? Ray Evans is a, a, a wonderful church leader. He's, he's based in Bedford. He serves a church there called Grace Community. And Ray's a, a really an experienced, godly leader. He's preached here before. Ray wrote a wonderful book about church leadership in which he asked the question, what has God brought into your life that has given you gifts? And the first example he gives from his own life is of being in the Scouts. Do you know the Scouts? Uniformed Boys Movement. He talks about when he was a young person and he was put in charge of a little group of the Scouts. And he said, even before I realised it, 
I had to make sure that the patrol came up to scratch every week. Did everyone have clean hands and fingernails? Do you know how hard that is to achieve with five boys aged 11 to 14? Did everyone have a pencil and a notebook? Was everyone's woggles straight? A woggles is this plastic thing around the neckerchief. I used to worry about getting it right, as there was fierce but friendly competition between the patrols for coveted points. The repetition of patrol inspection week after week formed in me a habit that became useful in the week-by-week -week demands of Christian ministry. The troop also taught me about awkward man management. Full of characters who I can still clearly see in my mind's eye, here was no conformist, obedient workforce who would do what they were told. Unbeknown to me, I was learning to motivate and guide and unify a group of people who were all volunteers. That was being in the Scouts as a teenager. He then goes on to talk about school and education. And if you've had the privilege of, of further education, the things that you would have learned there, and the workplace. Ray actually went to Cambridge University, and his first job after uni was a window cleaner. He talks about what he learned, cleaning windows, and how God used all these things in his life to give him gifts that were useful, useful for the church. Now, what about you? Jesus has given you gifts. Every single one of you. And he's given them to you to use to serve his body. So we need you, and you need all the rest of us. That's the image of the body, the diversity of gifts. Now, we've just read about those five, four or five gifts, you know, the apostles, the prophets, and so on. Those are kind of the, the sort of upfront ones. But let me just read to you in closing from Romans chapter 12. Uh, Paul here again talks about the body and again talks about a grace given to us. And here he uses some different gifts. And as you think about these, maybe you start to see yourself coming into clearer focus. If you want to follow along, it's Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. Paul says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Listen to this. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. Here's, a, here's one of the lists. If your gift is prophesying, that's a, a speaking the word of God to people's lives. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If your gift is serving, then serve. If your gift is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now, do you see there the range of the kind of gifts that God gives us, Jesus gives us for his church? Some of you have got a gift of encouragement. You can come alongside a person and say things to them that build them up and strengthen them and give them a cheer for the journey. Some of you have got resources. You can give. Maybe you've been blessed with the ability to make money. I wish I had that. 
but the Lord didn't give me that gift. But some of you can. So he says, okay, give generously. Some can, are gifted with leadership. You're able to lead. And one of the ways you know this is that when you lead, people usually follow. So do that diligently. Be very careful with leadership. Some have got a gift of showing mercy. This normally refers to caring for the, those who are broken or poor or in need. Do it cheerfully. Some have teaching and speaking gifts. Some have gifts of serving, to serve practically. Now, this, this again is not an exhaustive list. There are five gift lists in the New Testament. They total 20 plus gifts. One of them is administration. So these are very practical things. And if you think about all the things that would need to be done to make a church function, then we all have a part to play. The diversity of the body comes because Jesus Christ, when he ascended on high, gave gifts to the church, and that means every one of us. So, unity and diversity. Let me close with a few questions and then pray. Where is God challenging you to bear with somebody in the body of Christ at the moment? Is there someone you have to be patient with? As we pray in a moment, bring that person into your mind's eye and pray a blessing on them. What can you do to help maintain the unity of Christ's body in your local church? What can you do to help maintain the unity? What gifts has the risen Lord Jesus given you, friend? And how can you use them to serve his body? Let's pray. Loving Lord, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the church. The body of Christ for which he shed his blood. Thank you that it is his bride. and One day we will be united with him in the most intimate fellowship. Thank you that you've created in the church globally a unique new people, a new society. Thank you that you've given gifts to us. Help us, we pray, to see where we need to bear with one another where we need to be patient, where we can contribute to unity and, and reveal to us and perhaps help others to show us what our gifts are that we can use in your body. For we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.